Here we are now with the next instalment in our series, Finding Other Worlds, a commentary on The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And we're halfway through The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, so if you're interested in the book The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, just listen to the episode before this one, because that's where we began our plot. That's where we started going through some things, and probably the most notable, the most significant turn in that part of the narrative was the transformation of Eustace. Now, Eustace was this quite bitter young boy and projected quite a lot of his nastiness out onto the world and the people around him, and he found himself turned into a dragon. He found himself stuck as a monster, and in that time, he had to come to terms with what it means to be a monster, what it means to be separated from your friends and family, what it means to be unable to be accepted by those around you because of what you are. And he went through a process. He went through a deep process of tearing off his layers and being reborn in order to come out of that process or that to come to come out of that complex that he was sort of laboring under so it took growth it took personal introspection it took a new kind of wisdom a new kind of maturity on his part so it's probably it's probably one of my favorite images now that i've thought about it it's probably a quite a clever way of illustrating that process so The plot continues, and we were just up to the bit where they had found this island which has a special kind of spring to it, which has water that turns things into gold. And Peter and Prince Caspian, King Caspian, had had a bit of a fight over realising that they could turn anything into gold. So they left off, they realised that it was a cursed place and that it would only bring more troubles, so they're off on their adventures. Now, Reapy Cheap. We need to understand Reapy Cheap. This guy is... This guy is one of the most significant characters the most hardcore, the most ruthlessly seeking, the most interesting in his complex in so many ways. He could possibly be the most interesting character in the whole series, I would wager. There's a lot to him, and we'll see, we'll see as this narrative unfolds, particularly in this next few, in these next few chapters, why that is the case. Now, he's got this thing which is a poem or a song which his mum has said to him when he was a child, and he's got it sort of bouncing around in his head. And it goes like this. Where the waves go, 
Where the waves grow sweet, doubt not, reapy cheap. There is the utter east. And oftentimes, when reapy cheap is given a sort of dilemma, or whenever the crew is getting into a bit of a complicated situation where they need to make a decision or they need to make a choice in what direction they're going to do or what they're going to do. Many times, Reapy Cheap refers back to his adventurousness. He refers back to his honour. And he would say things like, well, I can follow the king and that's one value or I can do what is required of me and that is the right thing to do and I'll do that. And sometimes they don't coincide. Sometimes those two things are split and he's left with a kind of quality which he holds strong to himself. Now, what those qualities are and how that plays out, we'll see very soon in the next few chapters. Okay, so to move on in the plot, they come across another place in their journeys and they find that there are strange things going on and they encounter what they figure out to be these invisible people, right? They can hear them talking and they can hear them saying things and basically it's like an ambush because they say, listen, we've got you surrounded, we're invisible, you have to do what we say. And, of course, they're saying, well, maybe we should try and fight them, maybe we shouldn't. What will we do if we have to invite someone invisible? How do we know they even have weapons? And sort of as they're saying that, one of the invisible people throws a spear and it lands right between Reapy Cheap's feet. And they say, well, the swords and the weapons become visible the moment they leave our hands. And it was at that point, well, it was like, okay, we have to do what they say. Now, their story is, and this comes out as they're talking, that there's a magician on the island who cursed them to become ugly. And they didn't want to be ugly. They didn't like it. And so they snuck into the magician's office one day to find a curse that would make them invisible, and it worked. So they've put this curse on themselves, and apparently that also worked on the magician himself, so they're unable to go and sort of get the curse lifted, get the spell lifted. And what they want is Lucy to go into the magician's office and actually find the spell that will reverse their invisibility. Now, the other thing about these characters, these, this, this group of invisible creatures, is that they're, they're really funny in the way that they talk, and it's like they have this sort of head guy who's coming up with all the ideas, and all the rest of them sort of just go along with him and agree with everything that he says. And they're not that bad. They're not violent. They are actually inviting the crew over for dinner. So they're all sitting around having this food and 
every time the the invisible they they I believe they're duffel puds, duffel puds. They call them duffel puds. Yeah, that's it. They're duffel puds. So anytime the duffel puds are saying something, they all agree and they would all say these funny things like, "Oh, oh gee, that water really does get you wet and these sorts of things." And oh, by go, that will really get you on that unawares. And there's all these funny stories as well about how they they buried the cooked potatoes to make potatoes that would grow that were already cooked. And they did the washing up before dinner to save time afterwards. And a whole bunch of little funny things like that. So they're a bit quirky. They're a bit funny. They're a bit eccentric. And it's really quite hilarious to hear them interacting with this crew as they're invisible. So, the next day, Lucy sneaks up into the magician's office, into his little place. And when he when she's there, she finds a number of things. One of the things she finds is that there's a mirror on the door which doesn't reflect her it reflects someone else and that was a kind of defense which she had to get through and once in the office well she finds the big magic book and she sits down and she starts reading and she starts looking over the number of spells that are in there and she sees quite a number of them and this is really this is really a kind of test for Lucy it's a kind of thing that she has to bring to different parts of her being. It's a kind of event that, well, how how should I say this? It's, It's an event which brings the parts of her being to light within her. She starts to see parts of herself which she wouldn't normally see, and she has to deal with her reaction to them. So... One of the spells is to make yourself the most beautiful woman in the world. And as Lucy is reading this, she starts to see this image of herself, very beautiful. And furthermore, she starts to see this in contrast to her older sister, Susan. And she starts to see, have this, have this experience of her older sister being jealous of her good looks and she sort of gets taken in by this this spell as she's reading and she starts to think yes i am going to do this spell i should do this and she snaps out of it she actually comes to her senses with the help of aslan who has a little brief appearance here and she reads on and the next spell this the next spell she sees is the spell to hear what your friends think of you and she reads it for a bit and she goes into it and the vision occurs to her of two of her school friends and they are on the train talking about her about oh do you really want to be friends with her or do you really think she's worthwhile hanging around this sort of thing and she gets a bit taken aback she gets a bit to thinking, whoa, I thought we were friends. How could you say that about me behind my back? 
And I wonder, I wonder if it's always awkward to hear what someone says behind your back. It is always awkward. There's always something in that. There's, there's something in the social fabric, fabric that says when people are talking about you, well, whatever it is, it's quite uncomfortable just that they are talking about you. So Lucy has to face that and she feels quite upset about it. She feels a bit almost betrayed by it, but Aslan makes his appearance and explains to her that, well, actually, what she says is different to what she thinks. And what she says to her friend, her other friend, is different to how she really feels about you and how she relates to you. So it's not always black and white what people think or say about you. And Aslan says that, well, you probably shouldn't be too quick to feel bad about what she's saying and Lucy thinks it through and says, well, yeah, we probably should remain friends. And part of that realisation, part of that insight that came from Aslan was that she realised, she noticed that if Aslan hadn't have explained it to her, she could have gone back to school and thought, well, she's saying things behind my back, I'll never talk to her again. I'll never be her friend again. Whereas having Aslan explain it and sort of think it through with her, she was able to see, well, actually we probably can remain friends. And that difference was big for Lucy. Because to her it meant, well, she could have a friend for the rest of her life, or she could lose a friend. So that was an interesting thing for her to learn. So the next spell that she came across was a story. And the story was a kind of magic story which sucked her in and by all accounts her experience of it was all-encompassing and it was a kind of enchanted story which she really enjoyed, she really loved. It really engrossed her. And the spell wore off. It was, it was almost like the book was casting the spell on her. So she's, she's having these sort of visions and these experiences as she's reading this book, right? As she's reading this magic spell, these magic spells. And it's not clear who is enchanting who and who's doing the magic because it's like, is, is she reading the spell and then the spell happens to her? Or is the book having some kind of magic that is put onto her? So this boundary between where the magic is, where the magic is coming from, is blurred. And don't forget that Lucy isn't a magician, right? She doesn't normally know things about magic. It's not normally her expertise, right? She's just some kid, and yet somehow being involved in this magic book, she's able to have the magic happen. So this story, this engrossing story, this encapsulating story that she goes into, well, that becomes something within her, 
And it's said that whenever Lucy says, for the rest of her days, whenever she said that she thought it was a good story or she enjoyed the story, what she means is that it was very much like the story she read in the magician's book in that distant island in the world of Narnia that one time. So it's a very significant thing for her to experience a story like that so deeply. And really, it's quite, it's quite deep to ask yourself how, how profoundly can you experience a story? How much can a story make an impression on your being? And that's really something to think about. That's really something to understand. And it goes particularly also, of course, in the explicit way, which is that you read these children's books as a child, and that makes an impression on you. So, she had the beautiful spell to make her beautiful. She had the hearing her friends talk behind her back, and she had the beautiful story. And it's at about this time that she realizes she can't turn the books, the, the pages of the book, the other way. She can only turn them one way. So she realizes that she can't actually go back because she wants to be in the beautiful story again, right? She wants to keep going into that, but she realizes she can't. So eventually she comes across the invisibility spell and she says the spell, she does the tricks to lift the invisibility off the duffel puds and the magician and also even Aslan. So Aslan turns up in the flesh and she says, well, you don't need magic to be invisible or not. And he said, well, I have to, even I have to follow my own rules. And she does also meet the magician. And he turns out all right. They get to talk about some things. So, Aslan parts ways. And Lucy says, there's this one comment which jumped out at me, which was that Lucy says, will I see you soon? And Aslan said, oh, wait, what does... No, no, Aslan says... I will see you very soon, my young child, something like this. And Lucy says, well, how soon is soon or when is soon? And Aslan just says, I call all times soon. And that is a sort of cutaway comment which indicates Aslan's timelessness. So I found that quite interesting. Do you know what it means to be timeless? Do you know that this is an actual phenomenon in our world, in, in the humans of planet Earth? There are people who are timeless. And you can often guess at this by the little comments that they make, such as, I call all times soon. And that's a deep subject. There's a lot in that. And there's so many deep subjects we need to go into. But we continue forth in our plot. So, 
the duffel pods, they part ways and not before one of them figures out that they should tell them that they look beautiful because they don't look that bad. And the whole thing about them thinking that they're ugly was part of this spell where they just agree with everything and it had sort of just been like someone had suggested somehow that they were ugly and because they all agree with everything always, it had become this thing, right? So one of them tries to say, well, you look beautiful now. And they sort of agree with them, but they also sort of don't. And it's very confusing and it's very funny. And they're always having these eccentric comebacks. And it's a, it's a, it's a funny little collection of characters. So they move on. They sail away from that island. And what they come to next is a dark, misty sort of place. There's no land. It's just sort of dark and misty. And out of nowhere, they have a man turn up. He's sort of overboard, drifting on some driftwood or something, and they pull him aboard, and he's quite in a state when they pull him aboard. And he simply says, get away, turn back, don't come to this place, this is a cursed place. And they're all saying, well, what, what, what is the problem? What's happening? What's wrong with this place? And he says, this is the place where dreams come true. And at first, some of the people are like, oh, well, I'll be married with so-and-so and and I'll I'll have this house. This is the sort of thing that I want to be. What's wrong with the land of dreams that come true? And he says, you fools, this is the exact kind of thing that brought me to this place. And none of my people are left. I am the only survivor And just imagine what dreams can come true because it includes all the nightmares. And of course, people start thinking this through and they realize, well, if it does include the nightmares and they really do come true, we must get out of here. So they turn around and they row for their lives. They row and row and row. And it's looking like they might not get out out of there. But... They do, they manage to make their way out of the dark, out of the mist, before anything too serious happens. And the other thing is that they find out that this man that they've pulled up from the driftwood is actually one of the lords that they're looking for. He's one of the relatives. So he joins the crew, and that's another one of the people that they were searching for on their mission found. He's the first one that was alive. I don't know. I think the the governor was alive. I don't know if the governor was one of the lords, though. Anyway, doesn't matter. He's another character. So, the next place they come to is another lost island. And they discover a very curious scene. They come upon a very curious scene. And this is a place which has apparently a banquet going on, but there are three people, three lords, that are asleep at the table. 
And it looks as though they've been sleeping for years. They've been sleeping and sleeping for years. So the people sit down, the crew sits down. Reapy Cheat, Peter. Well, Peter's actually... Is Peter in this one? Edmund. No, Edmund is in this one. Sorry, I said Peter and Prince Caspian, King Caspian were fighting before. I meant Edmund, who's in this one. Peter's not on the voyage of the Dawn Treader. So they're sitting at this table and they're sort of trying to work out what's going on. They're trying to work out why they're sleeping so much. They're trying to work out how there is food there. And a ghost comes up and says, feel free to eat. Feel free to be here because this is the closing star. This is the place where people come to rest and then a man comes along, a sort of wizard figure, and he introduces himself as a star. And he says that every day he gets younger. Every day he gets closer to his birth. And Eustace has this comment, which is, well, how can you be a star? In our world, stars are giant balls of gas that are burning billions of miles away. And the man turns to him and says, well, even in your world, that is not what a star is, only what it is made of. And that's an interesting insight. You've got to think that through. What something is, is not what it's made of. And that goes for all worlds. That goes for everything. And they continue talking with this ghost and with this star. And it comes out that for them to lift the spell of these three sleeping lords, they must go to the ends of the earth. They must send someone off to the very end of the earth. So the other thing that happens is this Lord Lord Roop, his name is, I think, he, this is the guy that was pulled up off the raft, he gets put to sleep with his other lords. And this, in a way, is a very good thing because he'd come from the land where the dreams come true, right? So he'd been unable to sleep properly for years and well, however long he's been there. So for him to get put to sleep next to his other lords was a kind of gift. So now the crew is faced with their final decision. They're faced with their final leg of the journey, which is deciding to go to the end of the world. And they're close. They're getting close. And they figure they can turn back and have the supplies. So it's another leap of faith in that regard. But then also there's the question of, will they make it? What will be there? What happens if they topple off the end of the earth? These sorts of questions. And this divides the crew. This really does. Because they realize they can't... Caspian realizes he can't take the crew under false pretense, right? He can't tell them that, oh, we're just going to keep sailing. He has to be able to explain that, well, we're going to the very ends of the earth. And more than half of them don't want to do it. 
They think that's not a return trip. We're unable to do this. I don't want to do it. How do we know we're going to survive at all? This is a terrible idea. And Reapy Cheap, well, he steps in and he says, it doesn't matter what decision the captain makes, he's going. He's going to do whatever it takes. So Reapy Cheap's plan is to go as far as he can with the Dawn Treader and then go the rest of the way on his own. And his reasoning is, you've come this far as if you wouldn't want to go all the way. You've come just so close, and yet you want to return and think about how that's going to be. Are you going to tell the story of how you almost went to the ends of the earth? And just think of the glory. Think of the story that you could tell if you did go all the way. So, Reapy Cheap... Reapy Cheap is set on it. Reapy Cheap is making up his mind that this is his destiny. And as for what they're speculating is beyond the end of the earth, well, many of them guess that it's Aslan's country. But you never can know. It's the great unknown. It's the thing that can't be decided. So, Caspian, what he does with this decision is he actually takes a very strong stand and he has this ingenious thing where he says, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to be selective about the crew that we take on this. And those that we don't select will stay here and those that do become selected will come with us. So spread yourselves out We'll give you some time to think about it, and you can either apply to be on the crew to go to the ends of the earth, or you can not apply, and from the ones that apply, we will only accept a certain amount. So the crew are sort of having some time to think this through, and eventually what they end up doing is, well, one sort of convinces another and one realizes that, well, if you're going, I'm going to go. And then another says that until eventually they all say that they're going. They've all convinced themselves that we all should be in this together. Now, Caspian, he still sticks to his guns. He doesn't use it as a sort of game just to trick everyone into it. He actually still does say what he's going to do. And he says that Well, these last few people who changed their mind at the last minute, they're going to stay. So they're not on the crew. So that's a very interesting stance for Caspian to kind of create the honor around the journey, around the voyage, is testament to his leadership. It's testament to his ability to create a meaningful event to create a meaningful purpose in a group of people so be selective there is something quite profound in being selective and actually saying no to certain people so they sail forth 
towards the end of the world. And this is the final leg of their journey. And as they're sailing, Lucy looks out. And Lucy, remember, she is someone who has a heightened perception of the world around her. She's been in nature. She has been able to perceive things differently on many occasions. And she looks out and she looks down into the ocean and she sees a black dot which seems to be swimming along underneath the boat, underneath the ship. But as they sail on, she realises that that black dot is actually the shadow of the ship. And she sees... This water is clear. This water is very clear. And as things go on, she looks into the depths of the clear water and watches how the shadow moves across the shapes that are down there. And she looks and she sees as they sail on that mountains are coming, valleys are coming. And she looks further and further and then she sees a castle. And then she sees some underwater people. And she notices that, well, they're looking along with curiosity. They're looking along like they've never seen a ship before. And she gets the sense that as she's looking, she's seeing a whole world. She's seeing a whole sent a whole other reality where things behave differently and things act differently and the whole way they live and see things and perceive things is different. And she looks on and she does say this to Edmund and sort of point out some of the things that she's seeing but he decides and well Caspian decides that it's probably best not to share this with the rest of the crew. It's probably best not to say anything about it and say too much because the crew might become enchanted or they might fall in love with one of the mermaids or something like this. So that's an example. That's yet another example of knowing a world and not saying something about it because of how it will be taken by others. So they sail on and the waters become more shallow. The waters become more clear and the days become longer and the light becomes brighter and they all find themselves sleeping less and less. They also find themselves eating less and less. And they also find that, well, they're not talking very much. And when they do talk, they talk quietly, almost like a whisper. There's no 
extra chit-chat. And they enter into an eerie sort of space where they're always aware and they're always bright. Almost like they've got eagle eyes and they're able to see. And all the colours, all the warmth that is around them open things up. They also find that the ship is now sailing on a current and the current seems to be only in certain parts of the water. So if they move into the current, it takes them towards the east and if they move out, then it doesn't do anything to really move them at all. So it's very quiet and yet they're still sailing. And suddenly, they hear a splash. And they think, what could that be? Has someone fallen over? And they run to the edge and they see Reapy Cheap. And he's jumped over. And they think, Reapy Cheap, what are you doing? And they throw him a rope. And he climbs back on. And as soon as he's up, he says, Sweet. The water is sweet. Taste it. And so they throw a bucket over, and Caspian takes a big drink from this bucket of seawater. And he realizes, wow, it is sweet. It is brightening, and his whole face opens up. His whole body relaxes. His eyes widen. And he says, whoa, that is something that I've never tasted like before. So they must be getting close, because the waters are sweet. And that goes to show that, well, the ends of the earth are upside down. What's the opposite of salt? It's sugar. It just goes to show that, well... Opposites do exist, and when you find them, you're reaching a precipice. When you find them, you're getting to the brink of something, something something significant. So, they sail on, and very soon they come across a whole bunch of whiteness. And as they look closely in the whiteness... They see that it's lilies, almost like there are lilies just growing in a fish pond or something, but here there are millions of them, millions of them all around. And there's more and more whiteness happening, there's more light occurring. And they sail enough to realize that, well, the shallows are becoming more shallow, the waters are becoming more shallow, and they won't be able to take the Dawn Treader any further. So they pull out of the current. And Caspian says, well, it's time for me to go on. But he has to think it through, and he realizes that, well, he is the king of Narnia, and he can't go on, because he has a duty. He can't find what's beyond the end of the world because, well, he has to go back and live his life in the world that he is in. He has to captain the crew. 
He also has to be, well, the king of the lands. So he decides he's not going to go all the way. But Reepicheep, on the other hand, he's made up his mind. So they put down the boat. A couple of them go with him. And they row out a little further. And then he's got his little, he's sort of got this little boat, which is even smaller than the dinghy. And that's his thing for taking him to the final leg. And he says, I'll row in this for as far as I can. And as far as I've rowed in that, I will swim. And I will swim until I can't go any further. And just as he's putting his little uh, little dinghy sort of flotation device into the water, he pulls out his sword and says, I won't be needing this anymore. And that is a powerful image to see that the warrior, the brave fighter, someone who has fought many wars, someone who has stood his ground, someone who has defended his honor, will no longer need to fight. He will no longer need any sort of violence. Because he's come to the end of this world. And he throws that sword into the air, far into the sea. And it sticks in with the handle sticking out. So he jumps in his flotation device and paddles. And they watch him paddle and he paddles and he paddles. And he paddles off into the distance. And they see him just disappear on the edge of a wave, far off into the furthest east end of the world. And that is the story of Reapy Cheap. That is the story of his transcendence. And it is the belief of the crew that he made it to Aslan's country. But of course they don't know. They can't know. They can never know. And that's the thing about the unknown. That's the thing about the other world. That's the thing about going beyond is that you can't really know. You can't ever know. And they just have to live with that. They just have to trust that. They have to believe that. So, Lucy, Eustace, and Edmund, they actually stay in the boat. And they head off as well. But they don't go the same way Reapy Cheap does. They go more south. And the further they go south, they make their way up to a country land. And as they've made their way, the magic unfolds and in so many strange ways as it does when magic happens. They find themselves back where they were. Back in their house 
with their relatives. And that's where the Voyage of the Dawn Treader ends. And, of course, Eustace has gone on this big transformation. He's changed quite a lot, and it's noticeably different for him. And, of course, how wouldn't it be? How could it not be? I mean, just compare him to how he was when he was first talking to his cousins. He was making fun of them for talking about Narnia, right? He was teasing them. He was saying how balmy they are, how cuckoo they are. And yet now, he's had the experience for himself. Now he's seen it for himself. So now it's a very strong bond that they have. These experiences and the lessons that he's learned, the personal lessons that he's learned. And of course, he has learned things which... The others didn't learn as well. He learned things in his own way. So to be turned into a dragon, to be turned into a monster, and to face his own beastliness, well, that's something that Lucy and Edmund don't have in the same way that he has. So it's an incredible arc. It's an incredible image for them to end up where they have ended up. They come back, I mean, in all these stories, they come back right to where they start. That's always, the, that's always the full circle. That's always what happens in all of these sort of adventure fantasy stories. And yet, there's something profoundly different. There's something that is a complete cataclysmic shift within them between those two moments. And that's just it. When you have a perspective opening, when you have a growth in wisdom, when you have a life-transforming realization, those moments, those simple times, well, they become something very different. And in so many ways, the old world can't return. You can't go back to how things were. And there's so many examples of this. There are so many things that this can mean. It can mean going to another country. It can be meeting someone who has an effect on your life. It can be doing something you haven't done before. It can be going into something that is meaningful to you and going into it deeply. And really, most fundamentally, it's meditation. If you look at all these moments in these characters, they did it. They did their most heroic acts. They did their adventure in the most important way, in the most profound way, alone, with awareness, with their own strength of character. Reapy Cheap went to the ends of the world alone. He did it for his own honour. He did it for his own character. He did it with his own determination. Edmund, sorry, not Edmund, Eustace, 
had his own transformations when he was alone, when he was unable to talk to his friends because he was trapped as a dragon. It was when he was alone that he was turned into a dragon. It was when he was thinking about his things and how he had been and what he was like that he came to the realisation that he didn't want to be a monster anymore. And yet all these things are available to us right now through meditation. That's what meditation is. It's being alone. It's turning in. It's looking at what you are. It's looking at the monster that you are. It's looking at the things that are stopping you from being with other people that are within you. It's getting in touch with your personality, with your values, with your core determinations. When you meditate, you are developing the strength of character that Reepy Cheap had that was required for him to go to the ends of the earth. Now, meditation is incremental. Meditation is something you do in small, bite-sized bits in many ways. But this is a much more conscious way to open yourself to the deeper parts of life. And as if you wouldn't want that, as if that isn't what you feel when you read about these characters, when you hear about these characters in these stories, and not just this story, not just Narnia, but any story that moves you, any character that touches you, anyone that anyone that you think, whoa, they acted in a heroic way. They really had something something just indescribable about their core, about their purpose, about their direction, about what it meant for them to be in the world, what it meant for them to make their way through the world. And just look at Reepy Cheap. He's a bloody, he's a mouse. He's a mouse. He would be probably two foot tall. And yet look at the strength within him. Look at the nerve, look at the, it's really indescribable. I mean, the guts that it would take to sail off the ends of the earth. Well, that really is something, isn't it? There's nothing that you can really say to illustrate that feeling, to give that kind of nerve, to even grow that kind of nerve. You really just have to grow it for yourself. You really just have to find it for yourself. And you might say, well, what is it used for? What is the point of it? And if that's your question, I think you've missed the point. I think it's not exactly what you're meant to be seeing in this sort of story. It's really just the, the essence of what it means to exist within reality in its most profound ways. And that essence is not something that is used for something. 
It's not something that has a practical application. It's an experience that, well, make existence worth existing. It makes it worth it in so many ways. It makes it, in a sense, have its purpose. It is its purpose. The purpose is its purpose. The experience is the meaning of the experience. And we have to be a little bit abstract. We have to be a little bit poetic when we're talking about these things, because it is poetry. I mean, it's a poetic image, a mouse in a little flotation device sailing off the ends of the earth. As if that's not poetic. So, let me spring something on you right now. Let me actually bring this back down to earth. So, be open-minded. What I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you to do something. And before I tell you to do it, just say that you'll do it. Just say, okay, I need to, I need to put off whatever I'm doing at the moment. I need to stop. It won't take long. I'll just take a few minutes. But just pause for a moment and, and say, okay, I'm ready to change directions. Now, what we're going to do is meditate. So take a moment now to stop whatever it is that you're doing. Unless, of course, you're operating heavy machinery or you're driving. And in that case, only if it's safe to do so. Stop what you're doing. Find a quiet place. Sit down comfortably. And just, just take this as a moment to be spontaneous. Take this as a moment to break into your meditation. Take this as a moment to come back to your real core right now. Stop putting it off. It doesn't have to be later on. We can come back to the core right now. Now is the best time to do this. So sit down. Close your eyes. Take a few deep breaths. And just relax your body. And sit very still. And allow your mind to become quiet. Notice any feelings that you have, any sensations in your body, in your legs, in your arms. Notice your chest. Notice your head, how it feels inside your head. And just relax and be quiet and accept whatever is happening. Accept whatever is here. Accept anything that is occurring within your experience right now. And just sit quietly for a few minutes. And that's all I have to say for now.